All right. Hey, good morning, Providence. If you are new, uh, my name is Andrew. I serve here at the church as one of the pastors. And uh, I don't know if you guys, I know some of you are probably not looking forward to this morning uh, being snowy and a little bit crazy. But just so you know, uh, I actually love the snow and I love the cold and I love Christmas and I love basically everything that December represents. And so I'm excited this morning. So I hope that the few of us that are here today are excited as well. Uh, you know, I just think that there's just something about this season uh, that's awesome. I, I just love it. Now, from a, uh, from a spiritual standpoint, so that's kind of like I love Christmas trees and snows and everything else. But from a spiritual standpoint, uh, I also, I just love the season of Advent. Right? So I don't know if uh, maybe you're newer to church or maybe you've heard that word before, but you don't really know what it means. The, the word Advent just simply means coming. All right? so, so the advent of something is just the, the coming of something. And so every Christmas we celebrate the, the coming of Jesus. And so traditionally what the church has done is the four weeks leading up to Christmas is what's called the season of Advent. In the church, we take time uh, to celebrate and anticipate what it means that Jesus came to earth. Now, here's why I think this season's important, all right? More than just because of trees and garland and lights and snow. I think that this season of Advent is important for us as a church uh, because I think as a, as a people today, we're not very good at, at longing for things, you know what I mean when I say that? Like, we're not very good at, at recognizing our deep desires, our deep longings, and then patiently longing for them well. Right? Now, now here's why I say that. I think there's a couple uh, reasons for that. I think for some of us, um, we don't necessarily like to acknowledge or think about some of the, the deepest longings of our heart. Right, maybe you feel that. Like you don't like kind of diving deep into your emotions and your desires and the things that your heart really wants because maybe there's some fear that you'll never get those things and you'll have to face that. Maybe there's some tension of you maybe don't like what those deepest longings are. Maybe you're afraid because you don't know what they are but you're consistently discontent. And unsatisfied. And so what we do is we just kind of shove those things aside. And we just don't think about those. And so we just operate in the very tangible. Right? The very shallow. We just think about the day-to-day things. And we don't like to think about our longings. Others of us, though, I think we do like to be reflective. We like to get down in there. We like to think, okay, what is my heart longing for? But then comes the process of patiently waiting for those things to come. And some of us don't really like that process. So we may know what our heart longs for, but when we don't have it, we decide, well, I just have to take this into my own hands, right? I'm just going to take this, and I'm going to control this situation, and if my heart wants something, I'm going to just go and get it. And I think what, what the Bible says is that it's good to know your deep longings, but there's also a sense in which there's a godly way, a good godly way to patiently long for those things, And we just frankly are not very good at that. And so what the season of Advent does is it kind of cultivates in us this discipline of longing for something well. And so our hope over the next four weeks uh, is that through this Advent season we kind of slow down a little bit. 
right? Maybe every Sunday morning, we just slow the pace a little bit, and we just kind of sit in some of these longings. Maybe for some of us, it is just actually opening up our hearts and our minds a little bit and just reflecting on what is it that my soul is longing for. Maybe for others of us, it's kind of repenting a little bit and turning from wanting to just take control of things and just allowing ourselves to sit and just long well for things. Because we believe here that the Bible says that our deepest longing, the deepest thing that your soul actually desires, whether you know it or not, is a longing for a king. And I know that some of us, I think maybe most of us, don't really think that. We think, well, a king, I don't really think about longing for a king, and, and that's what the next four weeks are going to be about. We're going to sit in this idea of what does it mean to long for a king? Why does your soul actually want a king? Because here's the reality. When we hit Christmas morning, when we get to Christmas this December, our goal is that for the four weeks leading up to Christmas, we have so built this hunger and this thirst for a king that when we see in the New Testament that Jesus has come, our hearts just kind of explode. We think, yes, my king has come. And I, I know for, for me, as I've reflected over the last few years, uh, I don't think I've felt that on Christmas morning, right? I mean, it may be uh, all about just kind of stress and family gatherings and Christmas dinners and getting presents for people and all that kind of stuff. And my heart rarely gets to Christmas and just thinks, I need to know that my king has come. But that's our goal this Advent, all right? So here's kind of the, the plan for us for the next four weeks. So this is a spoiler. If you don't want to know, you can cover your ears. Uh, but here's what we're going to do. For the next four weeks... We are going to focus on our longing for a king from Isaiah 1 through 9. So we're going to look at these chapters, and it's going to lay out how we need a king. And so this week we're going to see that we do need a king. That's, that's the whole thing, that we need a king. Next week we're going to look at who this king is. And then we're going to see the king's plan for you and I. And then the day before Christmas Eve, we're going to see who the king's going to send to enact this plan. And then Christmas morning we're going to see the king, all right? Does that sound good? Okay, that's our plan. So here's what I want to do. Um, I want to sit for just one more second and just pray. Uh, because for us to do this, we need to repeatedly slow our hearts. We need to slow down. And we need to focus on our longing for a king. So I'm going to give us just five to ten seconds of silence. And I'm going to pray. And we're going to get into Isaiah 1. God, help us this morning. Help us to quiet our hearts. Help us to slow down. Help us to look at your word and be changed. God, we want, uh, we want to know what our hearts are longing for. The reason that we live day after day and still feel discontent and unsatisfied. The reason that fears keep building up that we may not reach these things in the bottom of our soul. God, we want to just expose those, God, and we want you to speak into that this morning. So would you help us? Would your word speak to us this morning? Uh, and would we see the glory of who you are and our need for a king? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, did any of you, when you were a kid, ever run away from home? Do you have any people? A couple people raise their hand. Okay, a few people. I think that uh, as I talked to a few people about this, uh, a handful of people I talked to said, yeah, when I was a kid, I thought it was a good idea to run away from home. Now, <clears throat> I, when I was about 
four or five, I got that brilliant idea. I thought, you know what? I'm five now. I'm probably old enough to make it on my own. I don't need my parents. I'm good. And so, so I came up with this plan that I was going to set out and I was going to make it by myself. And so I packed all the essentials. I think I had a little you know, book bag that maybe a five-year-old would carry. And I think I had like a toy truck and this blanket that I carried around everywhere. So I was well prepared for my journey, and I, I probably said my dramatic and solemn goodbyes, you know, and I leave with my head down, and I'm, I'm setting out. I'm on my own. I'm not going to see my family again, and so uh, I make it about maybe 10 seconds, I remember, and uh, I thought, yeah, this is about a good spot to set up camp for the night, and so I'm like two houses down now at some friends of ours, and, and so I set up there, and I think I get my truck out, and I'm probably just playing in the yard or something, and, and probably a whole, you know, 10 minutes goes by, uh, and I remember feeling like... Okay, you know, it's a little cold out here, you know, by myself, and this little blanket is not really doing it, and I'm kind of hungry, and I didn't think about bringing food, and I'm a little bit lonely, and I could have swore I saw like a bear at some point, which I would have admitted was weird in Norfolk, Nebraska, but I was a little scared as a five-year-old, and so, so I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden it just kind of hit me like, okay, this ain't going to work. Right? I mean, it was ridiculous for me to think as a five-year-old, I'm going to go and I'm just going to make it on my own. And my brilliant idea took me ten minutes and two houses away, and I decided, okay, I should probably go home. Right? I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. We chuckle at these things, and we laugh at, yeah, you know, I probably did this, or my kids did that when they were growing up. And it's a little bit silly, because the reality is, no kid at that age, when they have a healthy, loving family that has shelter and protection and food, for that child to think, you know what, I'm actually better off leaving that and trying to make it on my own, is just ridiculous. Right? I mean, it's utterly ridiculous. Well, the interesting thing is that in our passage that Jane just read for us this morning, God is going to say uh, that actually we've done something similar, yet far more ridiculous. Right? I mean, maybe you caught in verses 2 and 3 of the passage. If you, haven't, if you don't have your Bible open, go to uh, Isaiah chapter 1. Because in verse 2, he kind of sets this whole stage. And what he says is that in verse 2, you can look at it. He says, children have I reared up and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, look, Israel, you were my children. Like, you were in my household. I I cared for you. I protected you. You were my people. And he says, you've walked away. Like a five-year-old who thought I would be better off outside of my parents' authority and outside of their control. God's looking at Israel and saying, "You, you thought you'd be better off, and now the people of God are in exile. Now they're in turmoil. Now they've lost their land. Now they've lost everything because God's saying, you've rebelled against me. And I think it's these verses uh, that kind of set up our theme for this morning. Because what God's going to say is that uh, because people have rebelled, you and I, Israel, all people need something. We need someone and we need to be brought back to God. The big idea from Isaiah 1, I think, is that Because we've rebelled, we need to be brought back to God. That God's saying, you were my people. You were my created, prized possession, yet you left. And therefore, your greatest need is to be brought back. And Providence, I think this is important for us this morning. 
Because before we can celebrate Christmas, right, before Christmas is something more than just dinner and cookies and trees, we need to see that, that Christmas is God's plan to bring his people back. This is the enactment of the great king's plan. And so Advent is not a season of just prepping ourselves for Christmas. It is a season of building in us a longing for his plan to unfold. Okay, So what we're going to look at this morning is this one simple idea. I want our hearts and our souls to grasp that because we have rebelled, we need to be brought back to God. We need to believe that this morning because nothing else the next few weeks and Christmas morning won't mean anything unless we truly believe that because we've rebelled, we need to be brought back to God. So if you have Isaiah 1 open, uh, we're just going to look through this text in kind of three ways. All right, We're going to see uh, in verses 2 through 9, we're going to see our rebellion. So he's just going to make that clear that we have rebelled. Verses 10 through 17, we're going to see God's rejection. All right, We're going to see that God rejects those who rebel. And then verses 18 through 20, we're going to see our redemption, that there is a hope for a rebellious, rejected people. So let's get into this to see that because we've rebelled, we need to be brought back to God. So let's look first at this idea of our rebellion. Look with me uh, in the text, and as you see this, uh, I want you to think of Isaiah uh, 1 here as kind of a, a courtroom scene. Right? Maybe you've seen uh, kind of the uh, Law and Order type shows or any of those shows where you get this like dramatic courtroom scene. Well, that's what I want you to, want you to picture. All right? And God here is interestingly kind of acting as judge and prosecutor. Right? He's the, the ultimate judge of all things. Yet at the same time, it's God who is laying out accusations against his people. I'm just going to skim through these verses and just highlight some of the accusations that God lays against his people. So just look with me throughout this text. He says that God has raised up this people, yet they've rebelled. He says that he's fathered them, but they have run away. He says, I made you a nation, and now you're full of evil and sin. He says, I was your God, and you've forsaken me. He says, I gave you my presence and now you're estranged, you're isolated. He says, I gave you protection, and now you're struck down. I made you whole, and now you are sick from your head to your toes. I gave you health, and you are bruised and broken. He says, I gave you land, and now your cities are utterly destroyed. Think about the foolishness in these verses. You have Israel, who God came to and said, I am going to be with you. I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to father you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you protection. I'm going to do all this for you. And Israel, like a foolish five-year-old, says no. Says instead of all of that, I want to do it my way. Even in verse 9, he says, look, if I didn't intervene for you, you would be utterly destroyed. Like there would be no more Israel if I did not have grace on you. So here's what I want us to see from this section. Mankind's rebellion, you and I, our rebellion, Israel's rebellion from God is insanity and it's condemning. That's what God's laying out here. This is a courtroom scene. This is not just a, hey guys, like we should pick this up. He is laying down a judgment on them saying this is insane that you would do this. And now it's condemning on you. This is what it means to rebel 
against mankind. God is saying far more than a child who thinks their parents aren't good for them. This is insane that you would walk away from me. They're saying, you may be my creator, you may be my protector, you may be the sovereign Lord, but I want something else. Now, that was Israel's case, and we're going to get into how God feels about that in a second. Uh, but I do want us to, to, to sit in these verses for just a moment. Once again, I know that some of us, we don't like to kind of dive into some of these things. When we feel judged, or we feel condemned, or we feel hardship, we try to kind of push away. But I want us to press here and see that it isn't just Israel that has done this. It isn't just Israel that has walked away from God, it is us. I mean, think about this. If, if God is who he says he is, if God is who the Bible says that he is, he's the all-knowing, all-powerful creator king of the universe, then who in this room was not created by God? Like, who in this room has breath that isn't a gift from God? Who in this room is all self-sufficient apart from any other thing. Like, who in this room created themselves and has fed themselves and has brought themselves life? Who in this room is as powerful as God, is as all-knowing as God, is none of us. Right? There's none of us that can say that we have full life and self-sustaining ability apart from our creator God, and yet, like Israel, all of us have wandered away. All of us have left home and said, I would be better off making my own decisions, planning my life my own way, doing things the way that I think they should be done. And I fully recognize that not everyone in the room outright says those things all the time. But if we reflect on our life, our lives are marked by God saying one thing and us doing something else. God being one way and us living another way. God wanting to offer certain things and us saying, I want something else. That is who we are as a rebellious people. And I know that for some of you, I say that and I hope that comes across gently for some because I know that you, you carry that label, right? You feel rebellious. You carry that title of rebel, but I want that to press in hard for others, which I think maybe is a majority of us, who when we hear things like that, we think, yeah, you preach to those rebels. <laughs> right? That we think, look, I'm a good person. I, I, do, I may sin some, but I'm not a rebel. And I want us to just sit in the fact that the Bible doesn't excuse any of us. You may have a good upbringing. You may not have done certain bad things that other people have done. But unless you've lived your life to full submission to the king and creator of the world, we are all lumped in as rebels. And because of that, because we're rebellious people, God shifts in verse 10 and he lays down a verdict. So God goes from being a prosecutor and saying, look, you're all rebellious. No one has followed me as they should. And in verse 10, he shifts and now he becomes judge and he lays down a verdict and he says, because you have rebelled, I am rejecting you. And once again, I want us to sit in that for a second. I know it's a dark and gloomy passage, but I need us to sit here to know that in our rebellion, God says, I'm done. 
He doesn't take a rebellious people forever. He doesn't take a sinful people with no hope. Now look at this. He says, because of your rebellion, I now reject you. Look at, just keep your eyes on the page as we go down through some of this. And and again, I want you to feel the weight as if God is saying this to us as a church. Don't just think of this as an Old Testament lesson. Think about what he says here. Verse 11, he says, you have come to offer sacrifice. I've had enough. I don't want that anymore. He says, I don't delight in them and I don't want them. Verse 12, he says, who's required of you to trample my courts? Meaning, you've come into my courts and you've defiled them. You don't belong here anymore. Verse 13, he says, don't offer me anything else. Don't have any more festivals. He says, I can't endure these things. Don't even, don't even try doing these things. Verse 14 is utterly brutal. He says, your feasts and your celebrations that I look at, I hate. You celebrate things and I hate it. Verse 15 is terrifying. The God of the universe says, look, you've come to me in prayer. You're offering up these prayers. I'm not listening. I'm not even looking at you anymore. Your hands are filled with blood and sin. I will not listen. Do you feel the just like grotesque judgment of the Lord on a sinful people? He says, because you've rebelled, I want nothing to do with all these feasts and Sabbaths and new moons and sacrifices and prayers. Now, let's move that from Israel to today because I know that we can sometimes look at those things and don't you sometimes when you read the Old Testament you may look at that and think well yeah of course God doesn't like that right like all these rituals and these ways to get back to God like sacrifices and new moon festivals and of course that's not what God wants right they're they're useless to God but let's not be too quick to write these things off because let's think for a second do you remember Who told Israel to sacrifice? God did, right? I mean, who told Israel to celebrate the Sabbath? God did. Who told Israel to come into his courts? God did. Who told them to sing and to pray and to worship him? God did. So how in the world does God say, do all these things for me? And now in Isaiah 1, he says, you know, you're doing all these things and I hate it. He even says, Who required of you to do these things? I would be thinking, you did. Like, we're doing what you want, right? They're doing all these good things. So don't think of Israel as these just malicious people that never do anything good or the things that God has said. They're completely following the things that God has said. And he says, I'm done with them. I hate them. So let me maybe paint a little bit of a different picture for us, because I know that sacrifices and temples uh, and new moon festivals, those things are a little bit outside of our culture, and so they can be a little bit confusing. So let me just paint a picture that might help us kind of wrestle with what this means today. So let, let's think for a second. Just imagine with me, 2018, Omaha, Nebraska. I want you to think about what does a good American Midwestern Christian look like? Just start to like capture some of the thoughts and images in your mind. What does a good Christian look like? Let me, let me maybe paint a picture of it. As I've had multiple conversations with people, uh, what I sometimes hear. Let, let's imagine uh, a good American Christian named Bob. 
All right, we got Christian Bob, and this is our picture and of ideal American Christian. Now, little Bobby, he probably grew up in a good, nice, conservative Christian home. Now, that means that his parents brought him to church. He was dedicated as a child. He was a faithful member of the Sunday School Kids program. He had his Bible verses memorized, and he never distracted his teachers with bodily noises or any sort of tantrums. And so Bobby was the good kid, right? If for you Sunday School teachers, you're thinking, okay, that's, that's my guy, right? He is good. He pays attention. He answers questions. That's Bobby, okay? Good little kid. Now, Bobby gets into middle school and then high school, and he becomes to now be a model student in his school, right? He gets good grades. He's starting to play sports, and he's starting to kind of rise up, and he's athletic, and he's got a good reputation. You know, he turns into his teen years, and some of his friends start experimenting with cigarettes and with alcohol, but not our Bobby, because Bobby knows that those things are not good for him, and so he continues to say no, he's focused on school and sports and his youth group activities. So Bobby gets into high school and he's leading his youth group and he is going throughout his teenage years and he's never experimenting with alcohol or with drugs or with sex. He just keeps a clean record. He is flawless and spotless. So Bobby gets to college. Now immediately, of course, he gets connected into the local college ministry, uh, and he impresses his leaders because he's got verses memorized, and he's frankly around at everything. And as a college ministry leader, that's what you're looking for. So he knows some Bible, he's around at things, they thrust him into leadership, and he begins to thrive. He's setting up chairs, he's organizing events, he's even running the audio board, which nobody wants to do, and so he is doing well. Now... As he's in leadership, he begins to excel. He begins to now succeed in his job. He's got internships through college. And once he gets out, he lands that prime job out of college. Now, all the while, he's quoting Colossians 3.23 to work heartily unto the Lord on his Instagram post as he celebrates his promotions. Bobby is living out the way a Christian should look. He continues to grow, he continues to lead small groups, he continues to be at all the church events, he eventually marries the good Christian girl that's like him, they have three kids and they are all good and well behaved just like Bobby, he's in his 40s, he's got the house, the good job, the good family, the good church attendance and that is kind of who we think the good Christian today might look like. Right, I mean, maybe I'm a little bit on the extreme, but let's not be too fooled that when we immediately think, okay, what does a good Christian look like, we tend to think of things like that. But let me ask you this. Was there anything missing in my description of old Bob? You have church attendance there, Bible verses there, good reputation there, not doing bad things there. But I think the thing that we sometimes leave out and what we think looking like a Christian or being a Christian is, is the actual heart of what God calls us to be. I want you to look at verses 16 and 17 with me. As God lays out here what he has an issue with Israel with. Because he said, you're doing all the good things. You're doing all the things I required But then in 16 he says this, he says, wash yourselves, 
Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. And plead the widow's cause. Providence, I think our view of Christianity often has church attendance, quiet times, Bible studies, all these things. And we sometimes forget that God is really after a heart level passion and desire for him. You can be at all the church events, you can do all the things, but are we actually turning from evil? Are we repenting and turning towards God? Or is that love of God reflecting into a love of one another? Are we caring about the vulnerable? Are we caring about the things that God cares about? You know, if we're not careful, our clean, polished Christian lives may be no different than what Israel was doing in Isaiah 1. They were doing all the right religious activities, and they had no love for God or for other people. And I think if verses 16 and 17 don't mark us as a people, then God can look at all of our church activities. He can look at all the things we do here and say, I've had enough. He didn't create us to just try to be a good-looking people. He didn't create us to just do the checklist of good religious activities. Israel did that, and he said, I hate it. We can do that, and he can still look at us and say, I hate it. And the problem that we have is that most often, when we do feel rebellious, we think that just a few more church activities will kind of clean us up. That if we just did a few more of these things, if we just didn't go out to the bars uh, as many times, if we just made it to church a few more times, if we just cleaned ourselves up a few more times, then we could be right with God. And I think that's like a, a serial killer saying, I know that I killed 10 people, but I was nice to my grandma last week, so should we be good? I mean, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't correlate. If you have a life of sin, your three good deeds, your one time in church doesn't make sense. It doesn't correlate. You need to be right with God, and your sin has to be dealt with. And so in the midst of our rebellion, if our Christian activities aren't going to get us there, then what is the hope for rebellious people? Is there any way a rebellious people can be brought back to God, or is there any hope? For our redemption, simply meaning our being brought to God. Well, look at the last few verses. We've seen our rebellion. We've seen God's rejection. In these last verses, we're going to see that there is a hope for our redemption. Look at verse 18. He says to a rebellious people, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God says here, okay, let's reason together. My rebellious people, my Providence Church, my my people, let's reason together. There's two options for you. Verse 20 says, if you want to, continue to refuse and rebel. That's your choice. You can continue to rebel against me. Continue to to think that you can do life on your own. Continue to take control of the things in your life. Continue to run from me 
and hate me and do just Christian activities to make yourself feel better. You can do that. And he says judgment's coming because that's insane and condemning. He says there is a second option. He says even though you've been rebellious and even though I reject these attempts to be good with me, there is a way to redeem you. That even if you're separated, there's a way to bring you back. He says all you have to do is to have your sins that are marred in red. Right? Your, your garment, the garments of your soul. If, if your record was a garment, he says, it needs to be clean, white, spotless, and perfect, yet yours is dripping with dark red blood. But if you make it white again, you can be with me. If you can make your deep red sins sparkling white you can be with God now how do you take a dark red dress and bleach it as white as can be you know what we often do is we go back to verses 11 through 15 and we say okay I'm going to scrub man I'm going to church attendance and I'm going to be in my city group and I'm going to not go to the bar tonight and I'm going to do these things and we're scrubbing the garments of our souls saying maybe I can make it white The reality is we all feel the fact that we can't. You can't take a dark red garment and make it white. Therefore, we need someone to bring us back to God. We need someone to do verse 18 on our behalf. And here's the beautiful thing. The Bible doesn't leave us wondering how that happens. It actually picks up that exact same imagery at the very end of the Bible. Do you know that that scarlet red, those garments, it picks it back up. I'm going to throw some verses on the screen. In Revelation 7, he picks up this theme of our garments. And just read this with me. He says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? From where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Catch what he said there. The rebellious, crimson-stained sinners can only come back to the throne room of God when they have their garments bleached in the blood of the Lamb. It is only in heaven that you can bleach your dark red garments in blood and have them come out white. That's a ridiculous concept. You bleach it in red and it comes out white. And other than the work of Jesus, it is not possible. Yet if that's true of you, I love verses 15 through 17 there, because what it says is when that's true of you, you are led back to the throne of God. You sit in the kingdom of God forever. You will hunger and thirst no more. Those longings of your soul will finally be met. And the lamb, which is Jesus, is your shepherd. And you know what the imagery of shepherd is in the Old Testament? It's an It's an imagery of a king. 
the kings of Israel were called the shepherds of Israel. When, when you talked about a king of a people, you said he is the shepherd of his people. When here it says Jesus will be your shepherd, he's saying if you are plunged in the blood of Jesus, he is now your king. Therefore, Isaiah 1 and Revelation 7 say that the only way that you and I can be brought back to God is if we have a king's sacrifice on your behalf. And if you believe that, it says he is your king forevermore. He guides you into the throne room of God. He sits with you in the kingdom of God forever. And providence, this is why we long for the coming of Jesus in this Advent season. Your soul's greatest need and your your greatest desire is for your scarlet sins, your scarlet garment to be made white so you can dwell in the kingdom of God forever. You don't need just a little lamb. You need that humble lamb to be your great king. And unless Jesus came as a, a humble baby, he would never have been a powerful king. And so Providence, this Advent season, for the next three or four weeks, what we're going to do is build off of this idea and we need to recognize our need for a king to bring us back to God. We need to acknowledge our sin-stained garments and we must give up this season, actively give up this season, attempts to scrub our garments clean and rest in the king that we needed to do it for us. So let's pray. Father, you are so good that you would send your son as a king of the world, that he would come for a guilty, rebellious, rejected people, and that you would lead us back to you. God, I pray that that reality would not be... um, head knowledge and would not be old news, but God, would you stir our hearts and affections this morning? As we sing now to you, would that be a reality in our souls that we needed a king? We needed one to wash us white as snow, and that is what you did when you came. So God, would you help us this season to long for you? Would you send your spirit to build that in us? Would we acknowledge our sins and our rebellious nature? And would we rest in the fact that we have a king that has come? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite up uh, the communion servers at this point. And uh, we're going to take communion. And as we do, uh, I want us to, to meditate on that Revelation 7 passage. That although you, as we sit here, we are marred by sin, when you come forward and you take that bread and you dip it in the dark red juice, it is a symbol of your garments being dipped and plunged into the blood of Jesus. And as you take that, you can know that you have a king that has made you white as snow. That you have someone who through this sacrifice has brought you back to him and I would ask that as we do this would you just pray and would you slow your heart down to meditate on this reality to to believe that your soul was longing for this act of God to send his son Jesus and so if that's true of you if you believe in Jesus would you come forward and would you symbolize how your soul has been plunged into the blood of Jesus and been made white as snow